This is Legacy Battle. Make sure you hit like and subscribe, whatever you're listening on. I'm Mike Williams, creator of Legacy Battle. My panelists tonight from the Walker Report, Brad Walker from Steelers Nation South, Rollo Coffin. And we're joined tonight by a professional women's tennis player. She's got nine career titles and 245 wins. May have more than that at this point. That's that's what I was able to find. But she's also a director and a producer. You can check out her Showtime documentary, Love Means Zero. And, and it's uh, love in the tennis sense. So keep that in mind. <laughs> um, she's currently a tennis director at the Beverly Hills Tennis Club. I assume you're still doing that? I am. I am. Perfect. And she's also a two-time All-American out of USC. So we got Ann White here. Ann, thank you for coming on. My pleasure. Nice to see you guys. You too. You too. <laughs> so tonight's debate is going to be the greatest women's singles upset in tennis history. Um, if you're a big tennis fan, please check out the archives. We've done uh, greatest rivalries, greatest moment, uh, greatest women's player. And ironically, in that greatest women's player, the guest was Elise Bergen that night. But ironically, every player that we discussed as the greatest of all time happens to be in the upsets tonight. So that funny how that worked out. Yeah. And as always, we're going to have a Q&A after for Anne about her career. So we're going to jump in this, and I haven't started a show in a long time, so I'm, I'm going to start out tonight. And uh, we're going to go with uh, Kathy Horvath upsets Martina Navratilova. Uh, so we're going back to 1983 in the French Open. Martina was on a roll, flawless run of 36-0 coming into this, only losing seven games to that point um, in 1983. So very impressive start to the year. Um, this is peak Martina here. So Everybody knows who Martina Navratilova is, so we know what you're talking about when I say peak Martina. She easily won the first three rounds in this tournament, and then in the fourth round, Insteps in 45th ranked 18-year-old Kathy Horvath. So this kind of came out of, out, of, out of nowhere for this one. But So in this match, Martina, she, uh, her coach, I, and what I feel is some bad advice, gave her some advice on how to play this match, told her to just wait back and uh, wait for Kathy to make mistakes, then become aggressive. And th that, that, that was the killer because Kathy played this very aggressive. Um, Horvath was, she wins the first one, 6-4. Um, in the first set, she was charging the net, being aggressive on the court, taking control. Martina was hanging back, not coming up, playing to her strengths. And then Martina, would she would pull off the second set, to, get, to tie it up at 1-1. But then in the third set, Horvath broke serve, and she takes home the victory. Um, the interesting thing about this is Horvath lost in the next round. And then Martina, she would go on after this tournament. She would finish the year of 1983 with an 86-1 record. 86-1. So her only loss came here to Horvath. And that's the closest season ever to perfection which, you know, we've obviously never seen in, in women's tennis. So just an insane upset. And all of our upsets today are going to be insane. You're going to be like, wow, that, I can't believe that happened. But And let, let me come to you with this one because you have played Martina. Um, you know, what are your thoughts first off on how to beat her? And what do you think of this upset? Um, Martina was aggressive was an aggressive player i mean she was not one to hang at the baseline like chris everett and i think um the clay courts certainly favored kathleen um and ironically 
in 84, I lost to Kathleen in the round of 16. I remember everyone saying, well, she beat Martina here last year. And, uh, and I got beat badly in the fourth round by Horvath the next year at Roland Garros. So I do remember specifically that she pulled off that big win, but it, it wasn't a big surprise to me because Kathleen was a great competitor and she was playing Martina, even though she was in top, top form, that was not her strong surface. And I think she got a little nervous and she wasn't as aggressive as she probably should have been. And, and you know, obviously we, we pro you probably don't know the weather that day, but I imagine the courts were super slow, uh, which would have favored Kathleen even more. And, and the cooler the weather, the slower the courts, my, my point, so. How much does, in, in tennis, how much does a coach play in, in a match? Um, I mean, some, but, you know, I mean, listen, one of the beauties of the sport is you're out there on your own and you got to figure it out, you know, and it's you know, never change a, win a winning game, never change a winning game, always change a losing game. And uh, Mar Martina's enough of a champion to know um, and certainly to know what she does best. But again, you know, you, you can have a little bit of an off day uh, on your not your best surface and a really good player can can take advantage of that opportunity. And I'm, I'm sure that's clearly what um, uh, Martina did. And as we talk about another little upset in a minute that, that you uh, told me about, I think a similar thing happened where somebody thinks that, you know, I'm going to win this no problem. And then all of a sudden they find themselves in trouble. And then you have to, to sort of claw your way out of it. And, and Kathleen's a great was a great competitor. Just in, in your opinion, 86 and one, is that the greatest women's tennis year ever? I mean, it's certainly right up there. I mean, losing only one, one time in a year is incredible. Um, she won three slams that year as well. And, and when Martina was on, I mean, she was super, super strong, especially with that lefty serve. And um, she was overpowering. And plus, she had just sort of adopted uh, the real uh, true fitness regime uh, off court um, I think she was training with Nancy Lieberman at that time. And, you know, she was really a pioneer when it came to going to the gym and really working hard on your fitness and your diet. And, um, you know, it, it certainly worked for her. So. And she had finally overcome the, the Chris Everett effect. She was at that point had won eight of the last 10 after being dominated for several years by Everett. So she was, uh, had definitely moved into her prime there, but, uh, well, let's move to our next one. Um, Brad, why don't you go next? Speaking of Chris Everett, <laughs> um, I drew the Everett uh, Margaret Court match from the 1970 Charlotte Open. Mm -hmm. um, this match took place during the semifinals of that tournament on clay um, on September 9th, 1970. Uh, Margaret Court is from Australia. Chris Everett is born in my state, uh, the state of Florida. Um, Everett was only 15 years old when this match took place. Um, Court uh, had just two weeks prior come off achieving the second calendar year Grand Slam. Um, she was almost unbeatable. Uh, she started 1970 winning 21 straight tournaments. Um, Court was warned that Everett should be taken seriously. As Ann just said, sometimes hearing that, the player not doing that, um, is what cost her that. Court committed 14 double faults. She was seen very nervous, which was unlike Margaret Court. Um, this was um, 
Again, Everett won seven six seven six in straight sets. Uh, this achievement was called the biggest upset in 1970. Well, ironically enough, um, I was Chris had won the 16 nationals that year in 1970 uh, in my hometown of Charleston, West Virginia, and I was a ball girl for her. So uh, she oh, was cool. the inspiration for me. Um, and I was fortunate enough to play doubles with Chris in 1986, and we beat Steffi Graf in the finals of the Hilton Head Tournament in doubles. And I will tell you, um, there's, there are three players that if I had to pick somebody to play for my life, um, one would be Chris Everett, two would be Jimmy Connors, and I think you know where I'm going with the third, it's Rafael Nadal. So Chris was a, is a strong uh, competitor, and, and probably not the greatest athlete, but mentally she was the best. I mean, she really, she gave you very few uh, free points. Martina, you know, could have a couple bad, couple bad games and play a couple loose points. Chris didn't really play loose points. And I'm not surprised, um, especially again, you're playing, she was playing Margaret Court on a clay court, not to her advantage. Um, I guess the lesson here is, you know, you, you can never underestimate your opponent, even if they're 15 years old. Um, and Chris won in, in, I believe it was two tiebreakers, correct? Correct. And yes. back then it was a nine point tiebreaker. So you, you, you only had to win by one point. So it was, you know, five to four and, um, you know, Chris was, showed very little emotion and knew how to compete from a very young age and certainly carried that on. I think, um, how many she won 18 grand slams and was in um how many how many grand slam finals i think i wrote it down here uh 34 slam finals so um not not a surprise to me and plus there was an age difference too i think it was you know 12 12 years or so that uh, margaret court was was older than chris so does it take away at all from this one the fact that we know that chris everett would go on to be arguably a top five player all time. Like, does that maybe take away a little bit from this upset? Um, you know, I think, I think as in, when you're an adult, if you lose to a 15 year old, you know, it's, 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 <laughs> it's, it hurts from that respect. But um, again, you know, she went on to be one of the greatest, certainly one of the greatest clay court players to ever play the game. And I think Margaret court was, um, extremely successful on grass because back then they played the Australian on grass and Wimbledon on grass, um, the grand slams that she won, um, in all categories, but certainly still holds the record for singles. Um, and like I said, if I had to have pick somebody to play for my life and it was a female, I would pick Chris. <laughs> all right, let's go to, uh, Rollo. So 2015 U S open. Roberta Vinci versus Serena Williams. Uh, it's not the rankings that made this, the, in my opinion, the biggest upset in history because uh, Vinci was 43rd in the world and Serena was number one. It's where they were in their careers. Serena had had 21 major wins at, up to that point and Vinci had never been past the fourth round. Um, uh, and Serena was dominating. She was looking for the calendar slam, uh, which hadn't been done since Steffi Graf in 1988. Um, but it was the way she lost, you know, so, um, so, you know, that's the one of the most prestigious, uh, achievements in tennis is the, the calendar slam. 
And this person who had, had, hadn't made it past the fourth round comes in and defeats one of the greatest of all times, who on our show we deemed the greatest of all time. So that's why it stands, in my opinion, as the greatest upset of all time, simply because of who Serena was versus who she was playing. Well, so, yeah. I remember that match because I was at the U.S. Open that year. And um, don't forget, Da Vinci was number one doubles player in the world. So she was crafty. She had a wicked slice backhand. And if I remember correctly, you know, Serena had uh, 40 winners and 50 unforced errors or something crazy like that. I mean, she had a very um, rocky match where she, she um, her rhythm was, I think, disrupted by that backhand. And I think, again, that she maybe didn't take someone as serious as she should have. But um, not to go too far in the future, but I really loved Ash Barty in the way she plays because she was able to throw that slice back in a lot and disrupt the rhythm. And that's exactly what Da Vinci did to Serena um, in 2015 at the Open. And also, I mean, she says the pressure didn't affect her, but you, you got you got to feel that. I mean, you're, you're on the verge of... Um, and there have been so much hype about it. Everybody was talking about it, as you all remember. And I think um, there were just a couple points in that match that could have gone either way and Serena would have won because I think Da Vinci had, you know, 20 winners and 19 unforced errors. So they both were sort of split with um, their winners and unforced errors. But I really think that that slice backhand and her slow pace just threw off her, her normal rhythm of just, you know, hitting the daylights out of the ball. And Rollo, Serena, she was ranked number one at that point, right? She was number one, yes. She was number one. Okay, yeah, I just want to double-check on that. Well, let's move into our, our final one tonight. And uh, I drew the short straw, so I got stuck with two here tonight. But uh, <laughs> so not all upsets are alike. And, and, I, and I say that because this one was on the biggest stage of them all. This was Wimbledon. And to me, that means a little more than than – anywhere else so defending champion Steffi Graf I, and I might add this that Steffi Graf had won Wimbledon uh 91 to 97 every year <laughs> this year she won straight so uh she places or she, she goes against unseeded unseeded not even a seed uh Lori McNeil and it goes it's two sets McNeil wins seven five seven six but uh, for Graf, she becomes the first defending champ to lose in the first round uh, there at Wimbledon. And Horvath, she would lose in the sem semifinals to eventual uh, winner uh, Conchita Martinez, of course. And this was uh, like, it, 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 it was a crazy match. Some The weather was really bad. Some say that the rain was a big factor in this. And I know I saw a quote from Steffi, who actually first go by, with Stephanie now, but back then it was still Steffi. I saw a quote from her that said that, yeah, the rain threw me off a little bit, but we both did have to play in those conditions. So, I mean, you could kind of look at it as maybe a little sour grapes or whatever, but they both did have to play in those conditions. Um, and then... Um, so this was the uh, uh, first round loss for Steffi. This was her first first round loss since 1984. So that was huge news all in itself. 
But in my opinion, why this one is the best, and keep in mind, I also represented the Martino one a little bit ago, but I feel like this one is the best for a couple of reasons. One, you get you get it at Wimbledon. Two, it's a loss in the first round. No other ones that we're talking about tonight were a loss in the first round. And three, it's to an unseated player, which this is also the only unseated one, I believe, that we're talking about tonight. So, Anne, I, I, I ask you with, with, with this one, um, Wimbledon is, it, like I said, it, it's just it's just bigger. It's the grandest stage. Does that add to the the appeal of this one? Well, Lori is a friend and um, someone who I played doubles with and played against. And um, if you had to play her on grass, I don't care who you are, you would be scared. She had a phenomenal uh, grass court game. She had a great serve and great volleys. And her backhand slice was one of the best in the business. Um, so you could understand on if she was able to, what she did, direct a lot of balls to Graf's backhand. She was just digging balls out of the grass to get them up. And Lori, I'm sure, was at the net closing it off. So... Um, this was just probably the worst first round match that Steffi could have had against an opponent who um, could have won Wimbledon. I mean, she lost to, to Conchita in the semis, I believe, in 10-8 in the third. And she was probably points away from the final. And then, you know, so anything could have happened there. But um, again, the pressure, I mean, I'm, I'm sure... Um, Lori got out to a great start, played the big points well, and she was as is, is tough as anybody. It's tough as Martina on grass if she was playing well. So um, not a surprise of all the ones we've talked about. This is the one that um, not a surprise. But all the, the four upsets we spoke about, they all the player that won and create, got the upset was on their best surface. So it wasn't like Lori beat Steffi on clay or um, Kathleen beat Martina on, uh, you know, uh, hard courts. So, you know, that the, the, the thing with um, Serena and um, Da Vinci, that was kind of even. I mean, Da Vinci's more of a clay court player, but um, the rest of them, you know, they were on their best surface to, to pull that upset off. And I might add that I mentioned the rain. There were in, those interruptions made this thing three hours long. But you know that so. that is something you just have to deal with, and it's tough because you have to stop and start and warm up, and you know get out there and and really stay focused. And it's really whoever is the strongest mentally to deal with the conditions is is going to prevail. And and you you'd actually mentioned something that I had read too. Um, the Graf's backhand was slicing all game long. And that was was that because of the style that was being played by McNeil? I mean, she could hit over it a little bit, but to, but she really didn't. I mean, she really ran around that thing to hit that big forehand, and her fo her footwork was phenomenal. I mean, phenomenal. And Steffi, I remember the first time I saw her play in um, Australia in, in the early '80s, and I mean, she was on the pra practice courts every night until it was dark. I mean, she was, and she was, I think, 15 at the time. I mean, she really, really was super duper focused and um, driven and had, you know, phenomenal footwork and setup for that big forehand. And that was her game. Plus, she had um, good court speed. She was quick and a big serve. She had a nice first serve. So, 
Well, let's uh, let's move into our vote here tonight. Brad, you're in my upper corner. Who are you taking? Uh, you know what, Mike? I'm going to go with Steffi Graf, uh, the last one you just mentioned. That's my vote. Okay. All right. Rollo? The upset of Steffi Graf. Oh, okay. Yeah, for me, um, it's tough. Uh, I, I don't know. I just when I look, Brad. When I when I look at yours, like I, I just I look at it. And I'm like, ah, it's. I know she's 15, but it's still Chris Everett. You know, <laughs> it's like it's still Chris Everett. Yeah. So uh, yeah, I think Serena's the goat in my opinion. I didn't think that two years ago when we did our greatest women's debate, but I do think that now. Um, so I'm gonna go with the Serena upset. So Anne, we come to you. You can can vote for any of the four. Um. Gosh, they're all they're all pretty good. Um, definitely not the the Steffi um, Lori because I I knew you know on a good day she she could definitely beat her. Um, I I think I have to go with the Serena upset too because that I think that shocked a lot a lot of people and certainly the fans and although it was exciting that they had an all uh, Italian women's final that year uh, in in at the U.S. Open, but. Um, I think that was a real, a real, that was a real, real upset. There you have it. That's two votes for Serena and two votes for Steffi in our show. When we have a tie, the winning vote goes to the special guest, which of course was Anne. She's picking the upset of uh, Roberto Vinci, the 2015 U.S. Open over Serena Williams. So win for Rollo. Good job, guys. Let's move into our Q&A. Rollo, you got the win. You get first question, and then Brad, you'll follow him. So, Anne, I live 10 minutes from IMG, which was back in the day, the Nick Balthieri Academy. What was it like training over there and getting to the train with probably the greatest uh, tennis coach of all time? Well, I trained at, at the Colony on Longboat Key before it was went to IMG, so going a little further back. But um, it was crazy. Nick was like uh, – you know, like the circus came to town and everybody wanted to hang around Nick and we all played and um, it was a lot of fun. And um, we all certainly learned a lot. And um, in fact, Pablo Araya, who trained with me, he's from Peru. He was with me and Jimmy Arias and Paul Anacone when we were all with um, Nick at the colony as kids. And now Pablo, I got him uh, working at the Beverly Hills Tennis Club with me teaching. So we're back, we're re reunited and back together. But, um, you know, it was, a, it was a wonderful time um, to be the, in the early stages when Nick was um, spreading his magic and then really starting his whole academy philosophy and building um, his coaching uh, stable. And that, and that's what he did. And, and anybody that worked with him, um, loved his quirky style and um and the way he motivated you and it wasn't so much about technique but he was a disciplinarian and he um taught you a lot of life lessons as well and made you really believe in yourself and um and i'm grateful that i had the opportunity to work with him good bro uh and i i you know uh, i i'm not the biggest tennis fan, but I do want to attend Wimbledon uh, one of these days. That's on the bucket list. What is it like playing there? And what is it like being an American tennis player playing there, being that the history between England and America from way back <laughs> to the Revolutionary War and all that stuff? 
Um, you know, to be perfectly honest, I never played well there and I should have played well there. It suited my game, but, um, it was very uptight and, um, I'm a little bit more of a free spirit, so to speak. And, um, a lot of rules as you know, <laughs> and, right. um, it was not the most relaxed atmosphere for me. It's certainly the most prestigious and, um, intimidating. Um, but, uh, it was not my favorite place to play. I, I love the atmosphere at the U.S. Open. I love the, the French Open um, in Paris as well. Um, and those were my two finest tournaments where I had my best results. So for me, if I'm happy and loving where I'm playing, I, 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 I seem to play a little better. So Plus it rained so, all the time. <laughs> yeah. Wimbledon's known for that, but... Uh... So I, I'm going to ask you the question that you probably get asked the most, uh, but, you know, some of our viewers might not be familiar with the situation. Wimbledon, uh, 1980s, a lot different than what we see now in the 2020s here. So you wore an outfit that, that brought attention that, I mean, gosh, now it would be considered extremely conservative in, right, <laughs> in, exactly. in this game. But, uh, you know, how how was it for you, you know, seeing like kind of the little backlash that came afterwards and, and, you know, what were your just thoughts on that whole situation? It seemed way overblown to me, but, you know, what were your thoughts? Um, well, I started wearing the tights because at the time my boyfriend was um, the head of Nike tennis uh, globally. And he oh. had gotten some tights from the 84 Olympics from Flojo. He'd had the Nike, had some tights made. And so he, he got me some tights to practice in. And I thought, oh my God, these are amazing. They keep my legs warm. I love these. And I'm 5'11". And um, I said, it's a joke one day. I said, oh, can you imagine a white bodysuit at Wimbledon? Wouldn't that be funny? And then... Long story uh, short, I'll try to keep it short. We, um, at the French Open, we met a guy, um, a friend, Carlo Grippo, who ran Nike Italy. And we told him, and he said, oh, it's a great idea. I'll have it made. I'll have it sent to you in, um, in England. Well, there was one problem. I was under contract with Pony Clothes and Shoes, and Nike did not want to buy my contract out. They didn't think it was a good idea at the time. And um, so... Carlo in Italy sent me two suits to London and they didn't arrive till Thursday of the first week. I was set to play Pam Shriver on Monday, but it rained the first three days. So by the time we played our match, it arrived that morning and I had to wear both suits. One was a, a sleeveless and one was long sleeve because they were so sheer. And I was like, oh my God, I can't wear that. Um, you know, it's, it's too much, but, um, Basically, I believe in fashion and function, and I think the players now finally have a way to express them as themselves with their apparel. And I don't think women should be told, you know, what you wear to work as long as you're not hurting or offending someone. And um, I really thought it was fashion and function, depending on the environment and, and the weather. I mean, it was cool over there. We started, I started my match at almost seven o'clock at night. It stays light late there. We, we The match got called due to darkness at 8.30 in the evening, quarter nine, we were to set all. So I was really more about fashion and function. And I think as we uh, can look back on that time, you know, in 85, you look at Lululemon, I only want to go into what their sales are yearly or whatever, but I mean, it's become the rage. Everybody lives in yoga pants. I mean, at the club now, most of these people playing tennis, if it's a little cool in LA, they're wearing tights. So um, there is something to it. And um, 
you know, it's it, it took a while to catch on, but um, I'm glad people are, are, are wearing tights. And, and we know the compression is good for, for the body when you're doing sports. I mean, we saw years Allen Iverson would wear the compression arm sleeves. So, I mean, it just it just makes sense. So, I mean, like swimmers, you know, they were wearing those suits, you know, to improve their times or, you know, and it was, you know, a choice that they, they want to make. And I think, um, you know, back then, you know, men were controlling what women could wear. And certainly the the eyes of the All England Club, the, the rule was what is predominantly white and must be suitable in the eyes of the All England Club. So, I mean, I was 24. I was a bit of a maverick. And I was like, oh, well, it's all white, you know, um, you know, trying to. But I did believe in the tights. And I still do. Um, and I think um, if a player can can wear something that can increase their performance or prevent an injury, um, they should be able to do it. One more each, guys. Same order. Kind of piggybacking off my last question. Uh, you were part of an excellent documentary, by the way. Oh, uh, thank Love you. Zero. Love means zero. Um, how did you get involved in that? And what was your what was your role in 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 helping uh, that get started? Well, I had lunch with Nick. Um, I think it was the end of 2014. And he said, Annie, Annie, you know, they're paying me $900 an hour, you know, and he took me on a tour of IMG. And I looked at this academy and I was like, holy smokes, Nick, I can't believe what you did. I said, somebody needs to do a movie on this. Let me, let me go back to LA and see what I can do. And so I went back to Los Angeles and one of my good friends, Jill Mazursky, is a documentary producer and writer. And I said, I think there's a story here. You know, Nick's an amazing coach. He had 10 number one players. He didn't really play. Um, he's been married eight times. Um, he's great and fun to be around. He changed my life and a hundred thousand other kids' lives with all the people that he coached. And, um, my we have a family home on Longboat Key, and it's across the street from where the colony used to be. And I walk that beach every time that I'm back in Florida. And the colony, before it was torn down, was uh, in disrepair for seven years, and it was vacant. And I there were mattresses up against the windows. It was like somebody left there in the middle of the night. And I thought, oh, we've got to shoot Nick on that front court. And that's where I trained every day, on the court that we shot with um, Nick talking and um, so it was just something that I had a feeling and I had an idea and I thought, you know, I was one of Nick's early students and he changed my life and I was grateful and I thought his story was incredible. And so I just sort of made it my mission to, it took me four years to gather some people and finally Showtime thought it was a great idea too. And um, we got a movie made and uh, we were nominated for a sports Emmy and, um, you know, it was, it was a real labor of love and, um, you know, I was a producer on the project, so. Brad. I'm glad you liked it. <laughs> um, and as a tennis player, I have to ask, what was your favorite surface to play on? Um, probably a hard court. I mean, I, I did okay on grass, but, um, and I, I love indoors. No wind, no rain, no sun, but um, probably a hard court. I like the ball sitting right up. Um, Certainly playing in Florida, as you know, it can be windy and it's tricky there, but um, um, I, I'd, had, I'd have to say a hard court, a nice, fast hard court. So I'm going to make my final question here, a two-parter. So you, your doubles record is over 500. Um, you, I know that you've played with several different partners. So I was wondering, 
the, the first part of the question is who was your favorite partner and and why and then second part um question uh beverly hills tennis club i mean that's one of the more prestigious clubs here in america so how, how did you get involved uh to to be running that show um well with the doubles, I I love doubles. I mean, it was always fun to have someone else out there and playing. I mean, Betsy Nagelson, who who's from St. Petersburg, we got to the semifinals of the French and the U.S. Open, lost to Martina twice and Pam Schreiber, and um, she was a lot of fun to play with. I played with Chris Evert. Um, we won Hilton Head. She was – I learned a lot from playing with Chris, and that was a great experience. Um Mary Lou Daniels, we won a couple tournaments together. We played in the juniors and then we played professionally. So that was fun. Um, Leslie Allen's another player that, so, you know, I play with a lot of different people and I, um, and I'm, I feel lucky that I had that opportunity and I was able to, you know, do pretty well in doubles. Um, I finally won a tournament in singles the last year that I played, which was sort of my Achilles heel and I got over that. So that was good. But um, regarding the, the club, um, I had a whole separate career for over 20 years in the, the wholesale watch business. I worked for Cartier and Giger Lacolle traveling around the world in the luxury goods arena. So I had this idea for the movie, the documentary, and then we had our meetings, our production meetings at the Beverly Hills Tennis Club, which was started by Charlie Chaplin and Groucho Marx uh, in the 1920s. Um, so they just, they couldn't get in the LA tennis club. They didn't let movie stars in over there. So they decided to open their own tennis club. And it's a very small, quaint little club, uh, in Beverly Hills, uh, that only has five courts. And, um, we were at a meeting one day and the, the president of the club took me aside or saw me and said, Hey, Ann, you know, Russell's leaving the pro. He'd been there for 17 years. And what are you doing? Would you, would you think, would you want to come, you know, be the head pro? <laughs> And I've thought about it and I, well, I've been hanging around Nick for four years trying to get this movie made. And so I got back into tennis. I was out of it with my other career. And then now, um, and it's been great because I wasn't burnt out. I had that whole other separate career there. And um, then the movie really kind of got me back into tennis. And now I work with a lot of kids and um, it's, it's very rewarding. I had no idea how fun and rewarding it would be to help people um, improve their tennis game, so. And Excellent. Tommy Phelps plays there there a lot, which is really nice. He's a terrific guy. And another former student of Nick's. Um, he gets um plays at the club quite a bit. And then, you know, he runs the Indian Wells tournament that's coming up next month in Palm Springs. So Okay. Awesome. Well, we, we want to thank you, Ann White, for coming on. We, we of course. I'm sorry it took me a while to get connected there, but no, not a problem. We're glad we were able to get this worked out. We really appreciate it. I know you're on a totally different time schedule than us too. So opposite sides. It's late. It's late for you guys. Not too late here. But so nice meeting you all. Thank you for having me on the show. Thank you. Awesome. Thank you. Remind everybody hit that like and subscribe button as well, and we'll see you all next time. Thank you for watching. Have a great. Right. Bye, night. guys. See you later.